You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry, where he shared his perspective on CTA replication strategies, Cliff Asnes' latest article, and also re-engaged on the topic of whether trend following really is the perfect portfolio. Also, I would like to encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where actually Alan, who's here today, had a great conversation with Jason Moreau, who is the deputy CIO at Utah's Retirement System, on the challenges of managing in excess of $50 billion in today's environment, a wide-ranging conversation that I'm sure you will enjoy. Alan, great to um, be back with you this week. How are things? How are things in Dublin? Yeah, good, uh, Niels. Good to be back. It's a bit bit wet and dreary in Dublin. It seems like the, the summer might be fading away. But uh, that aside, there's an awful lot to talk about in markets. So looking forward to our discussion this morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, and it's certainly, as you rightly say, it, it hasn't been a dull summer uh, for uh, for the financial uh, markets. In fact, it doesn't feel like it's been a summer holiday at all, uh, if you ask me. Um, so yeah, we got some great topics as usual uh, lined up, um, which we'll get into uh, in a few minutes. Before that, let me quickly round up this week. Um, we saw, of course, a slightly stronger than expected growth number in the August payrolls, um, but that didn't prove to be any help for stocks. Both the S&P and the NASDAQ each lost a bit. Um, for uh, on, on the day, actually, on uh, yesterday, Friday, and uh, lost about 25 and 3.1% respectively for the week. Bonds were also under pressure this week, uh, as were most markets across uh, even a diversified portfolio, perhaps with the exception of the US dollar. And for those who trade orange juice, orange juice actually had a good week. Um, so that was, those were the exceptions. Economic data this week offered a reprieve for the, or reprieve for the recent trend uh, of weak indicators, Economists had been looking for the economy to add about 298,000 jobs in August, um, but and that was following a very strong month uh, of 528,000 uh, in uh, in July. And then many analysts, of course, had been somewhat skeptical uh, that August would follow uh, with an above-trend outcome. But they were all proved wrong because we got a print of 315,000 new jobs. Ironically, bond prices actually rallied across the curve on this news, um, and uh, maybe it's the case of sell the rumor by the fact. Early in the week, there had been some whispering of an outsized employment report, um, and that, and in, in anticipation for that, market participants um, sort of sold the two years uh, and got the yield up to about 3.5%, and the 30-year topped out around 3.36% this week. But since we're now in September... Uh, maybe I should mention that QT will increase to 95 billion, I think it is, per month now in Treasury and mortgage-backed securities, rolling off the Fed balance sheet. At least that's what they announced. Um, 
QT, of course, began back in June. Arguably, it has been, you know, quite lagging in its effect uh, officially. Uh, it should be around 47.5 billion per month. Now it's up to 90, um, 95 billion per month. So maybe we will uh, feel the impact uh, of that. Maybe that's part of the pain that the Fed chairman talked about uh, from Jackson Hole. Of course, investors will be watching for signs of this operation pushing interest rates higher. And it is, of course, important to remember that we still see quite a lot of liquidity in the system, uh, even at this stage. Maybe as usual, Alan, um, I could ask you a little bit what you have been sort of picking up on your radar the last few weeks since you were last on. Yeah, it's interesting. I think when we were last on, we were talking about, you know, the market had concluded that we were possibly at peak inflation and peak central bank hawkishness. And, you know, since I think it's been a month since I was on, you know, you had a, a lower inflation print in the US that, that gave people a bit more hope on that front. But then obviously a whole raft of comments from Jackson Hole and subsequent to that, that would suggest that the view that we're at peak central bank hawkishness was was premature, I would say, you know. So, um, it, you know, even looking at the markets yesterday, uh, it was probably, a, you know, a, a, for anybody looking for some good news, it, it, you know, you could definitely point, uh, find positive aspects to the employment report. The participation ratio uh, jumped up and, and average earning, earnings were were more moderate. So, so certainly you could... Uh, you could you could find something uh, positive if you were looking for peak inflation there, but it does kind of underscore that the challenge for for the Fed that you know it was a week of comments. You know, obviously we had Powell last weekend, but then uh, you know Neil Kashkari, who used to be the arch dove, is and now has transformed into a a, a, a hawk. You know, he was said saying, "Yeah, I think rates have to go to four percent or so and stay there." So there seems to be a new narrative building of. Um, of you know higher for longer you know a lot of people a lot of strategists were quick to come out and and uh, call the the end of forward guidance but uh, from from my reading of it there, there's certainly plenty of forward guidance coming from the fed at the moment saying higher for longer and uh, um but but equally every time you get kind of a a weaker inflation print the market jumps on that and uh, pushes down yields again so so it's a bit of a seesaw but um certainly yeah as i say noteworthy that that kind of uh, peak uh, hawkishness hasn't hasn't arrived yet i would say yeah and actually um another force so to speak that took the gas out of the market uh yesterday literally speaking was russia yeah uh, they turned off uh the gas finally now um on Nord Stream one uh, so uh for an undefined period uh and so uh, literally there should be no russian gas flowing into europe uh, from now on um so we'll see what that does to um to markets uh, when they uh, reopen and reassess that. You know, since we're just talking a couple of days after month end of August, I think it's um, probably more appropriate to talk about August numbers in general, uh, not so much what happened this week, et cetera, et cetera. And it is interesting because I think August may show quite a lot of dispersion in returns among managers. Uh, higher than usual is my guess. I've only seen some early indications um, but that's my guess, maybe because uh, of the counter-trend rallies we saw both in bonds uh, and stocks, uh, and also all the volatility we saw in other markets such as energies and grains. Uh, I think the response to these moves may be different uh, manager by manager, 
And that's obviously determined by speed of models, the markets traded in the portfolio. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how various models and, and managers handle the last few weeks. Of course, I mean, it looks like for sure that uh, managers would have done well, and certainly those who had stayed short and fixed income. And this is, of course, uh, probably something I think you and I talked about um, briefly last time you were on, because there was this, to be perfectly frank, silly article on Bloomberg where J.P. Morgan and Nomura uh, was out saying how CTAs um, had... I can't remember the headline, some kind of sensational headline. Obviously, that's probably not their fault. That's the journalist giving up on $100 billion worth of inflation bets and how they had flipped their fixed income position from short to long and how they were responsible for the rally in equities that had started uh, in mid-June. And I think for a lot of reasons that we we talked about back then, that there was just not a lot of uh, substance or truth uh, to that. So anyway, we'll see how that all pans out. I imagine that managers have done well, in particular from being short fixed income. I think they have done well from uh, the currencies. Um, they behaved reasonably well. Uh, of course, we, we're down to this fact that even exposure to single markets like European natural gas, uh, maybe even electricity for those managers who trade that, that can even have a meaningful impact because of the huge volatility uh, we see uh, at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how the numbers uh, pan out. I want to I want to provide the numbers, and I want to hear your uh, sort of assessment, um, putting on your old allocator hat, maybe or something like that. Um, but um, just just so people know, my trend barometer uh, actually finished at a completely neutral level or in in the high forties uh, at the end of the month. It's at forty eight. Uh, at Close of Business Friday. So it's not indicating one way or the other, and that's also why I think we could see some dispersion uh, depending on the factors I just mentioned. But what it looks like is that the month of August finished up 1.73% for the Beta 50 index, uh, meaning it's still up almost 15% for the year. SOCGEN CTA index uh, up 3.33% in August, up 21.36% so far this year. Trend index uh, did better, up 4.06%. And now up 28.29% in uh, year-to-date. And finally, the uh, SOCGEN Short-Term Traders Index um, up 0.67% for the month, up 11% uh, and change uh, for the year. In contrast, the MSCI World Index was down 4.33%, now down 187 for the year. Uh, S&P Total Return, very similar for the month, down 4 and a quarter down 17% for the year, and the World Government Bond Index um, is uh, minus 3.14% for the month of August. Uh, You know, I think it's only had like one positive month, and that was July so far this year. It's really been beaten. And I think actually you probably will be able to confirm this, Alan. I think I saw some tweets now that officially we now have the first bear market in bonds, US bonds I'm talking about here, since forever i think officially they went below a drop of 20 percent um i thought i tweeted as well i mean i i I, yes. I i i um can't recall what index was being used but but yeah that was probably it, yeah. barclays aggregate yeah. um uh, something like that but anyways there's no doubt and, and i'm sure people who have a large exposures to bonds will um will have, will have felt the bear, so to speak, uh, this year. But anyways, your thoughts on um, on August, uh, if you have some, 
Um, yeah, I think you you're right. I think, I think I think you'll definitely see some some pretty good, pretty wide dispersion, um, as you say. The nature of the moves we saw in August, um, with particularly I would say with bonds and, and equities, obviously we'd had a summer rally in both basically since since the 14th of June. And, uh, you know, when we were talking about that the last time, you know, we, we were a bit skeptical. I mean, that said, obviously, faster systems, you know, for, for some managers would would have um, trimmed shorts uh, and, and for some managers probably would have um turned particularly in equities if you had a breakout system you know you could see how possibly you might have um uh you know with with, with the rally in the s p kind of in by, by the middle of august it was kind of hitting kind of i guess it was two three month highs so you could could see how for some managers depending on how fast or slow you are you might have either paired back quite a bit of the exposure or conceivably turned but um you know overall it's still a very positive environment you know dollar yen piercing 140 yesterday for the first time what since 1998 or so um so still very uh, you know notable trends i would say in currencies in particular um mixed you know obviously in the on, on the commodity side a bit more mixed it's been kind of a grinding move down in oil and again you could see divergences in positioning there it's been a bit more pronounced in some markets like gasoline uh, but equally, it's been kind of choppy in in the grain. So I think it, it is, it, you know, certainly there's on the currency side some 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 very strong moves there that I would expect uh, managers universally would have done well from. Um, but I could see that why you would definitely have fairly high dispersion. Obviously, we're only starting to see the numbers coming through on the kind of private placement side. But but you know, looking at U.S. mutual fund performance over the last month, you certainly do see that um, that pretty pretty large dispersion. So I think that's not surprising, given what, what we've seen in markets. Yeah, very true. By the way, just one comment to the equity exposure and and performance. Um, I think you're right. If if you were in isolation, just looking at the S and P, I think yeah, okay, maybe some models would have flipped. My point is that when you look at equity exposure in general, yeah, uh, certainly if I look inside our model, it is very mixed. I mean, there's some markets where we've been short for a while, and some markets where we're still long. Yeah. So trying to give this impression that everything in your fix in your equity sector has sort of flipped or whatever, no, for sure. I think this is where some of these uh, firms that uh, came out. Um, are wrong and and also maybe just to to add one more comment uh, on that and that is i mean whenever you hear people say that uh, in particular trend followers should be behind a big bear market rally okay if we are talking about risk management where positions get reduced for various reasons sure but clearly we're not going to get any new buy signals when the market is close to its low, that's just not how trend no, no, works. No, yeah. So, so it's this is what I'm. I was no, sort no, of, I, I, absolutely. And uh, to be honest, like about the, the, this was yeah. always, um, you know, when I was on the allocating side, it was always a bookbearer. You would see these articles where the, the you know, uh, uh, strategists on the sell side. I'm not sure how they've calibrated their models to try and replicate positioning, but but they do seem to be far more sensitive. Um, to markets than you see in the actual uh, positioning for for large trend followers. That would be kind of my general observation that um, medium-term trend following is much slower than what you typically see reported from. There's a couple of high-profile strategists that that, that report on this fairly regularly, uh, and there was often a a disconnect between what was being um, suggested and what we were seeing. So so I, I do agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, I think some of these analysts... 
may actually have a be able to peek uh, inside the positioning of their clients, which obviously I'm not in favor of that you basically, you know, even though it's anonymous, um, but disclosing what your clients are doing, what you're seeing shouldn't really be allowed within these investment banks. Anyways, be that as it may, um, well, no grinds uh, here, uh, of course. We're all positive and happy. It's Saturday uh, and uh, the sun is shining. But let's move on because we've got some um, some good, um, juicy stuff to uh, to dig our teeth in. The first thing is actually something that I've spoken to both with Jerry. Um, I've spoken to Mark about it. Um, I don't think I've spoken to Rich about it, but I still want to hear maybe your two cents on Cliff Asnes' article. And we're really only going to spend three minutes if people say, oh, no, they're not going to bring that up again. I No, no. But Alan, we have to remember, Alan comes from a different side of this industry. He comes from the allocator side, while the rest of us come from the manager side. So I was curious about sort of the, uh, the article from your perspective, uh, if you have any thoughts, as you know. Uh, and as Cliff very kindly acknowledged um, uh, on Twitter, we don't all have to agree on this, and there's a few things that I don't agree with. I still think it was a great article. It touches on a point that I think is really important, uh, and that many of us who are pure trend followers have experienced. Um, so um, anyways, enough for me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I thought there was a lot of very interesting stuff in it, very, very well argued. Um I think, you know, when I read it, I was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure I fully agree with all of that as well. But I think a lot of it comes down to perceptions and, and, and language as well. Even, um, you know, at the outset, he talks about the, the, the raison d'etre for managed futures. And people use the term managed futures. And very often, they're kind of implicitly talking about trend following, uh, even though they're not, you know, even though it's managed, you know, managed futures reflects a whole range of different strategies, short term, discretionary macro, quant macro, commodity specialists, FX specialists. So it's anybody who's trading a, a managed uh, portfolio in the futures market falls into managed futures. So it's so managed futures doesn't necessarily uh, have that mandate. But that's a, that's, a, that's a bit of a minor point, because a lot of people will understand that managed futures and trend following, it tends to be used interchangeably. I think, yeah, I, again, the, the mandate, I think that was maybe a little strong to call it a mandate. Um, it's, you know, if I would say agree with, I think, what, what was your, your comment with, with Mark, at least, uh, more of a feature, you know. Um, and uh, but, but again, it comes back to how it's positioned, how it's been sold, you know, and, and I think that's, that's important too. But, uh, you know, th there are a lot of features of managed futures. You know, is, is, is positive performance in, in equity bear markets, is that also part of the mandate? Um, People hadn't talked about that before, but but maybe now going forward, uh, positive performance in inflationary periods is that part of the mandate? I think again, that's a, another feature you would expect, uh, but but not necessarily part of the mandate. And then, you know, if it really is part of the mandate, you know, you could actually lean more heavily on 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 that side of the mandate, that, you know, and and have more risk-off characteristics in, in your in your portfolio. Uh, you know, if, if that truly is part of the mandate, would you trade equities faster to make sure that you're turning quickly when, when equities is turning down? You know, we've talked about kind of capped equity beta programs as well on, on, on the podcast before. There are uh, those types of um, strategies out there, programs out there that uh, either don't trade equities or cap the equity beta or uh, to cap the nominal exposure. So again, I, I you know, I think um, I think there's different um, 
while all, all of this reflects is there's different philosophies and different ideologies on this. You know, uh, you have some people who are pure trend followers. There are other people who believe trend following works, but it's one of a number of things that works. So we're going to combine trends in, 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 in uh, trend following with, with other strategies. And there's people who are agnostic. They, they might have a machine learning approach and they let, let, let it run. And at times it'll behave like a trend following program and at times it won't. So from an allocator's perspective, I would say the key thing is just understand what you're buying and understand how it's presented. And, you know, we talked, you know, a few months ago, about behavioral biases and narratives. And I think that's very important here. You know, when you see positive performance, what's the narrative around it? it you know, is it, you know, it could be that you just have more of a, an equity or a bond beta, but but they might be positioned differently. So I think that's the important point that, that Cliff is getting at in the piece is that you really have to delve in and understand, that, you know, if you're evaluating a trend following manager, if you just look at performance, well, that's pretty pretty naive. So this, then you have to look at risk-adjusted performance. Then you have to look at risk-adjusted performance plus the, the, the pattern of performance. How are they performing in equity bear markets? Then you have to look at, well, are they performing better in prolonged equity markets versus short uh, equity d d decline? So it's kind of like going beyond first level thinking to second level and, and delving into it. So that's I think that was the big thing that, that I took away as a positive, that it does highlight the need for that, that, that very often uh, you'll have seen it over the years as well. A manager will be top of the charts uh, for, for a number of years and there'll be a narrative around it. But you really have to do your research to understand, well, are they just picking up some beta? Have they really done something differently? And if they have, well, how will that play out in a, in a, in a different market and environment uh, going forward? So I think from from um, from an allocator's perspective, that's the big thing. The other thing as well, I know you talked to Jerry last week and it came up about, I think it was Aspect, making some modifications and that he, Jerry wasn't impressed with that. Um, but I think, you know, Obviously, managers are, are in the investment management business of providing products and different strategies and different options to their clients. So I think you have to be cognizant that you know, you're solving for different investor utilities as well. So if you have a pure trend portfolio, that might not be what... But what, what everybody wants, that people may prefer combining trend with a non-trend system like carry. You might have a lower drawdown over time. You know, so so it's not just about uh, saying, "Oh, trend is the best," and that's the only thing you should do. You know, there are the behavioral biases on the on the side of the investors that it can be hard to stick with a pure trend following program through a prolonged drawdown. Whereas if you have a multi-strat, yes, it might shave some of the performance in those severe equity downturns, but but that could enable the investor to stay invested in the strategy over the longer term, which could be a good thing. So, um, I, I would say. Don't be too hard on, on on investors for, or sorry, on managers for, for 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 providing different options. And the point is, a lot of the big firms will have a pure trend system, or a you know, depending on how you define pure trend, and a diversified system. So it's really up to the investors to do their homework to understand what's in it uh, and 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 make their own choices. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's perfectly fair, um, well said, and and you're absolutely right. I was absolutely um, somewhat surprised by the response that I got from Jerry when I brought this up last week. Still feel a little bit sorry about that, but um, nothing I can do about it. Um, but it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of the title uh, of uh, of a book that I co-authored with Harry. Um, where we called it the many flavors of trend following, because that's exactly what the, what there is. There are many flavors of trend following. Um, so uh, so we kind of anticipated that quite a few years ago when we wrote the book. But what I will say, there are two things that this paper 
did. The good thing is, I actually think Jerry has a point in saying, well, maybe we need to distinguish between managed futures and trend following. I actually think that is a, a good point because unfortunately, I, I do think that people, when they hear the word managed futures, they still think trend following. So maybe it's a good thing we do. The bad thing is that it's now given Jerry uh, an idea of of, uh, of a new term, namely mismanaged futures. And I know he's listening to us uh, speaking. And all I will say is that I don't think it's a good idea to try and promote that, even though it fits maybe his narrative, because if that narrative um, get, gets heard by the wrong people and they don't understand what it's meant by, then it could actually be interpreted as something oh, like, oh, I don't really like anything to do with managed futures um, because there's something going on here that shouldn't be going on. So I don't I don't actually subscribe to that as a good idea, but of course I know exactly why uh, it might appeal um, to Jerry. But anyways. If I just want to, one final point on this, which I think, again, comes back to the point of knowing what you're getting, because um, in, the, in the Cliff Aston's piece, he talks about how AQR have you know embraced economic trend following as well, which is interesting. And you know some some purists might dispute whether that's part of trend following. You know the whole philosophy of you should just focus on on the price. But um, you know if you think about how a lot of um, trend following managers have evolved their systems, you know you, you either traded more markets or you added diversifying strategies. And some of them are things like carry, which uh, has pointed out. But in other cases, it, it were things like quant macro. So, you know, economic trend following might be slightly different, but it would still be in the broad category of using more economic data to inform your, your process. Now, again, you have to really delve in to understand, well, what is the nature of that system? Is it is, is a relative value or is it directional? You know, um, in some cases we saw some kind of, some quant macro um, strategies struggling in, say, the, the COVID period, you know, because obviously price was much quicker to respond to what, what was evolving as opposed to economic data. So I'm not saying it, it, and it, what they're doing is, is in any way... Um, not a good thing, but again, it's it's a matter of understanding precisely what you're getting uh, when you're allocating to a manager, and that's really where you have to do the homework as an allocator. Absolutely, I will say though that f- from the level of understanding that I have, I don't think it's a good idea to now try and put quant macro into something and then label it as trend following. I think we as trend followers we need to stick with the fact that we use price. Uh, once you start to add all these other things, then I think it's different. Um, so I'm a little bit worried yeah. about that. I mean, I guess it comes uh, back to my personal. It comes preference. back to labels again. You can have quant macro. Yeah. You could have economic trend following. Um, well, we have systematic global yeah. macro, and that was a very very. Yeah, I mean actually, that's that the same inc- quant macro, systematic global macro. And that was very, very popular. And if you remember, it was so popular because it it didn't use the word trend following. It didn't use the word managed futures. So a lot of investors flocked that way. But as you rightly point out, when markets started to move quickly in 2020, many of these quote-unquote systematic global macro funds that had enjoyed massive amounts of inflows in AUM, they did not do well. And some of them even had to close shop. So this is why I mean that this is, there's a risk for us as pure trend followers to get a bad rap because people start blending other things in that investors think, are, oh, that's more or less the same. It sounds more fancy, so I'm going to do that. And then they have a bad experience. But, you know, these things happen from time to time. I do remember back in 1994 
where again futures had a really bad reputation and and I saw many of our of our CTA friends started to to call themselves hedge funds until hedge funds got a bad rap and then they were CTAs again so we, we understand fully why these things are happening anyways we want to move on to another paper uh, that um, you wanted to talk a little bit about I have briefly read it uh, it's from our friends at Quantica uh, came out and um, and that's not about them really it's about trend following as a strategy, which I really like about the paper, um, and how it fits into an overall portfolio. They obviously, it's kind of like the, um, it's kind of like an updated version of the all trends needs to, oh, sorry, all portfolios needs trends that Alex Grayson wrote many years ago. Um, he used a million different portfolios. They're using 10,000 different portfolios. But I think the message is, um, pretty much the same so i want to let you talk about this um this yeah it's funny that that uh alex grayson's paper came to mind as i was reading it i was trying to think yeah. do, do i still have that or was, um um was it exactly the the, the same message um but it, i mean it is very much a paper on you know the benefits of trend following and uh what it can add to um, a multi-asset portfolio and um, you know that might sound like something that that has been covered before but what was different about um, this paper was th they they take um, nine assets um, that, that they feel are kind of representative in lots of different institutional portfolios you have developed market equities emerging market equities nasdaq and then property, investment-grade bonds, high-yield bonds, emerging market debt, commodities, and gold. And 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 rather than you know defining um, you know the benefit of adding trend to a 60-40 portfolio, which is kind of the, the typical approach you see in these kinds of papers, uh, what they do is they. Um, randomly uh, combine or, or they look at all of the different permutations of the different combinations of those nine portfolios so you can obviously have 100 percent exposure to uh, equities or, or developed market equities 100 percent exposure to gold or commodities or 100 percent to emerging market debt and then the different uh, kind of uh, multi-asset mixes that you would get by by combining all of the different uh, um, nine portfolios and they um, they, they they basically generate ten thousand hypothetical portfolios portfolios historically and and then go back and um uh, and and look at um you know how much if you were to optimize those portfolios by combining an element of trend uh, what would be the optimal allocation to trend going back over basically over the last uh, 20 years i think base, uh, going back to when the sockgen they use the sockgen trend index um and i mean the, the, i suppose that the, the the first headline is the you know the average allocation trend is forty uh, percent, uh, and that's that's in terms of just sharp maximization. So you know it, it could that that could 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 mean a lower return, but but it, that, that's how to define it in you know sharp uh, uh, maximizing. Adding trend would have improved the sharp of all of the ten thousand hypothetical portfolios. So, so that's an, another. That's quite interesting, yeah. isn't so, it? So, yeah. so I guess if you were to put it in context, if you had a portfolio, say, of emerging market bonds and gold over the last twenty years, it, it would still you could still have improved that by adding trend. Or if you had a portfolio of say emerging market equities, emerging market bonds, and high yield bonds. 
you could have improved that as well by adding trend. Or if you had a 100% equity portfolio, you, and if you had a trend to that, you would have improved the sharp. So, so no matter what mix of any of those nine assets, if you had added trend to it over the last uh, 20 odd years, you would have improved, improved the sharp. And can I just add one thing, um, because I think it, it is relevant, and that is there, as you rightly say, they're using the Sockton Trend Index, which started in January of 2000. Uh, so it's about 22 years um, that this uh, period is covering. But actually, those 22 years, uh, and I can say that with some level of confidence because our track record is 48 years, right? So those 22 years were certainly not the best for trend following, right? It, it is through this environment where, you know, rightly or wrongly, trend following has been somewhat more challenged at yeah. least. So this is also adding, in my opinion, adding to the um, importance of this message. Yeah, for sure. I would have said <clears throat> the first 10 years was, was probably... I remember looking at this before in a historical context that 20, 2000, 2010 was, you know, it did have a lot in it that was good for trend following. Obviously, you had two equity bear markets and, and the commodity super cycle. But then obviously the last 10 years was a very difficult um, period, uh, well, a more difficult period for, for, for trend following. Um, some of their, you know, high level um, takeaways, the improvement in sharp ratio on average was 0.16. So so I think it was from 0.51 to 0.67. Um they then also looked at, if you looked at five-year periods, um, so not just saying, okay, let's take a 20-year view, because, you know, uh, if you take a 20-year view, it's it's like finance 101. Why wouldn't you allocate to, to trend following? It's like you get a positive return in equities, you get a positive return in, in trend following with a negative correlator. So, you know, you, you'd wonder why why there is a debate at all. But but then the, I suppose the point is when you look at the more, when you look at the five-year rolling periods, yes, there are periods when, it wouldn't have you. You wouldn't have had an allocation to trend following for some of the portfolios, and that's obviously um, you know you touched on the fact that we've had some tough periods. So I think um, I, I actually ran it myself, but I don't have it in front of me. If you were to look at a five-year rolling sharp sharp ratio of the Sockgen Trend Index, um, you know the five years to uh, you know the the end of twenty thirteen, or certainly the the halfway point of twenty fourteen would have been negative as far as I can recall, and the five years to you know the end of 2019 was a tough period as well um so in those periods you wouldn't have had uh in in for some of the portfolios not not all it was only a small percentage of the portfolios wouldn't have had exactly. an allocation of trend but the yeah. point that they make they make two interesting points here one is that well there were periods where the, the, the portfolio did well anyway uh, and secondly you know particularly say the, the the five years to the end of 2019 was very strong for for bond and equity beta. So if you'd had uh, allocated a trend, your overall portfolio would have still have done very well. And by allocating the trend, it wouldn't have detracted a whole lot anyway. Um, but but wh- wh- the, the periods when, when, when trend following adds value, obviously, is when you need it most. So, uh, and again, that's what we're seeing this year as well. So I think it, it's an important message uh, that, that even, uh, you know, you don't know uh, what the next five years are going to look like. Um, it could be a good period for trend following. It could be a bad period. We don't know. But certainly from a robustness perspective, you'd have to say it makes sense to have this in there because if it turns out to be a terrible five-year period going forward for traditional assets, trend following, will you would expect to do well based on history. No, no guarantees, but based on history. If it turns out to be a great five-year period for equities, well, great. That'll, that, that, that your portfolio will, will do well. Anyway, so, that, so, so that's kind of the, 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 the message there. The other point, that the final bit that they did, which was interesting, is they 
they basically, I suppose you might call it a stress test or a sensitivity test, they said, well, would these results still hold if you started to reduce the return from trend following? So if you start knocking 1%, 2%, 3% of uh, you know, the, the, the return from trend following, uh, going back to 2000, um, the stock chain trend has annualized, I think, a little bit over 6%, 6.3% in, in, in inception is what they say. Um, so if, if it was down, you know, to 5% or 4%, and, and they basically find that, that, that it still would make sense. Um, his, his, you know, historically, it would have uh, enhanced sharp ratios, even if, if uh, I think it's down to... Um, down to three percent anyway, but it, it, the returns and trend following would have to get down below two percent for it not to be something. Um, and of course, that's in the context of those historical returns of those asset classes. So they've taken the historical returns, say for high yield bonds, investment grade bonds um, over the last twenty years, and obviously those were in well, in, maybe inflated is the wrong word, but they reflected the fact that the starting Above yields average, for those assets were high back in 2000. So th- you would have to then adjust for that if you were doing a forward-looking analysis to, to, to reflect the, the fact that yields are obviously lower now than they were uh, 20 years ago again. So again, um, an interesting take on, the, on, on something that, you know, all, you know, most managers in, in, the, in the industry have produce something like this i would say at some point in time but but this is slightly different and, and interesting from that perspective yeah no absolutely i also think it was a great paper and uh, i really did like actually that um, analysis where you start every six months with a new five-year period and just to see how few periods actually uh where it wouldn't have selected a, a trend following allocation uh it's remarkably few um so i completely uh, agree with their conclusions of the robustness and the benefits and all of that good stuff uh, in terms of allocating to trend following, which of course begs the question even after 30 plus years of doing this is why do people still not have an allocation to trend following? And if they do, why is it not meaningful? Um, but anyways, uh, that is how that is how the world is at the moment. Now, now we're going to take a big jump all the way to Wyoming um, because you have some key takeaways from Jackson Hole. Of course, the place where central banks meet once a year, do some fly fishing, and um, and then they talk about the economy. Uh, we, of course, already know uh, that Chairman Powell came out with a hawkish speech, um, but you want to talk about some of the other things that came out of the uh of the central bank conference or whatever we call it symposium i think is what they call it themselves um so i'm excited to um follow your lead yeah i i, I thought it was uh, obviously very market moving uh, pal's comments um and a few things that that really struck me one very similar messages you know not if you just read powell's speech but across an, a number of the different um speakers and uh Bankers, economists, etc. You know, all with very similar um, messaging, uh, which I would surmise, summarize as, you know, uh, we've got an, a, a situation where aggregate supply is going to be less responsive over time, and that has implications for how you manage monetary policy. And those implications are not favourable. So, you know, we had a favourable aggregate supply shift 
over the last uh, two, two, three decades where you could basically run the economy pretty hot and always put in a lot of stimulus without ever having to worry about generating inflation. That seems to be over now. Um, the interesting thing about Powell was his kind of reference to history. And, and this is the other thing that, that really the 70s, 80s period is really weighing on all of central bankers' minds. And you really feel that when, when, you, when you go through all the speeches. His comment was, you know, peppered with... Uh, historical references and he cites Bernanke, Greenspan, Volcker, all of their kind of comments on inflation and he, and he, and he literally says the, the lessons from history. And then the other speech that that was really interesting uh, was from Isabel Schnabel, who's a member of the executive board of the European Central Bank. And, it, you know, it has a very, um, very striking uh, title and that, you know, basically it's, are we going into a great volatility? Obviously, you, we all know the expression, the great moderation, which economists talked about for years, but striking that a member of the ECB executive board would be talking about, you know, will it, will the next five years be the great volatility? Um, and uh, again, her uh, overall topic and tone was very similar in the sense of, um, you know, she says, uh, we may have more potentially more larger, more persistent uh, shocks over time. Um, you know, globalization, deglobalization is is one of the main things. Uh, the fact that the energy supply is is not as elastic as it once was. So this is something that nobody ever talked about for a long time because obviously it wasn't a problem. You had shale in 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 the U.S. You know, if you go back to maybe. I remember if you go back to maybe 2005, 2006, everybody was talking about peak oil and what a problem this is going to be. And then it kind of went away because obviously you had the, the shale revolution. But but it's back now, this this uh, this uh, concern about the, the, the limits for, for, for aggregate supply. Um, you know, she talks about how supply chains, uh, are, you know, will be... Um, become more robust because they'll be brought brought back to the domestic market, but that means uh, duplication and inefficiency. So again, not not a positive message. Um, but what she where she comes at is that these shocks uh, w w imply a trade off for monetary policy, um, and it's it's an unfavorable trade off between inflation and un un unemployment. So this is something that we were talking about a few a few months back. How this is going to come back? That basically, you know. Um, central bankers have a fairly unpalatable uh, decision at the moment. You either raise rates and slow the economy, um, which means higher unemployment, nobody likes that, or else you kind of have to sit tight and let inflation uh, stay high and, and, and possibly lose your credibility. So, so it's, it's a very unfavourable uh, trade-off. So the overall message here is, um, you know, that, that, that Again, Isabel Snabel draws from history and, and talks about the lesson is you basically have to err on the side of being more aggressive now. And, and, and I mean, putting that bluntly, that means probably means a recession and it means higher unemployment and, and just having to accept that. But it's been framed from the perspective that if you don't do that, that the bigger cost is that you would have to do it later, and that that would be more painful. So, I think this is, uh, and that's that that's the same message as you got from uh, Jay Powell. He he talked about pain for the first time, and 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 I thought that was interesting because if you go back to the last press conference in July, he kind of danced around that issue a bit. He talked about you know talked about slack in the labour market. You know what does that mean? It sounds like an 
loose economist's expression. But no, what it means is people losing their jobs uh, and having higher unemployment. So I think the central bankers are becoming more forceful, more blunt with their messaging, uh, and, and, and the market is, 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 is only waking up to it. Um, but, 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 but certainly um, interesting that, 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 you know, that you had a, a central banker saying, what all of this might mean is more forceful policy in the short term, um, you know, and a recession. And then presumably, if they're successful, then maybe they would have to unwind that. And that's where you might have this volatile period that, that Isabel Schnabel is talking about. But but I think it, it was something that, um, that um, yeah, it was, was very blunt and very striking from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to get some plain speak from some of these people, right? But what I'm just curious about, um, I don't really have any any um, sort of comments to what what they said. Um, and but my 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 query is more: well, if they're so blunt now, if they're so sure that they need to be forceful now, what took them so long, right? I mean, uh, it's like she's talking about this as well. It's in the history book, so we all knew it. But why haven't they done it? I mean, the ECB, what, did they move from negative to flat? So is that being aggressive? Mm, not in my book. Um, but anyways, we'll see. Um, of course, from the great moderation to great volatility is something that uh, I think uh, a lot of us, in, in in other words, have been expecting for a while. It's playing out right now, and it's probably nowhere near uh, coming to an end um, which is why, of course, we believe that these divergent strategies that we represent uh, should continue to have um, much more favorable conditions compared to the last 20 years or so. Yeah, it's interesting. But, I mean, if I just yeah. jump in on that, because okay. I had the same thought reading the, the speech, because within it, the, um, Isabel Schnabel talks about how one of the economists that she references, um, a guy called Carl Walsh, who's basically saying, that when you get this kind of shock, central banks should conduct monetary policy assuming that inflation is persistent, which is pretty much the opposite of what, what has been done. Because yeah. you know, if you go back a year, it was conducted on the assumption that it was transitory. You know, so yeah. it's as if uh, they've kind of gone back and looked at all the research on this. That mm, actually, what we should have done here was to assume it was persistent, uh, but but. But but actually, we assumed it was transitory. So well, actually, um, actually, Powell still used the word transitory in his speech, which I'm surprised that he even dared bring up again. But mm. anyway, leave, let's leave the central bankers um, for a second, because actually, what we're going to talk about is the bank for central bankers, the BIS, uh, Bank of International Settlements, because they were also out with um, some commentary talking about the uh, challenges uh, ahead. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you feel you already talked about that, but otherwise, it's, it's very to... similar. It's this is from yeah. Augustin Carsons, who's the general manager of the BIS. But I guess it's just interesting. Again, uh, the the BIS has been writing lots of stuff over the years about uh, you know the um, that has probably been a bit more pessimistic than mainstream um, um, central bankers. You know, they, for a long time they've been writing about the. You know the the possible unforeseen consequences of of keeping rates very very low, but now it's it's just interesting. His whole speech was in in a similar uh, vein as Schnabel's about this change in the supply side dynamics, and uh, you know a couple of things um, uh, were highlighted. Basically, it's the same similar kind of factors that a number of structural factors supported inflation over the last two to three decades. Uh, globalization, obviously, the bringing uh, China and and uh, 
Eastern Europe into the uh, global uh, labor force, um, technological develops, developments, uh, demographics, uh, um, and uh, and obviously globalization in the sense of, of free trade and all of that as well. And then again, basically just looking at all of these factors one by one and saying, well, factors that had been tailwinds for, for you know for, for inflation as in uh, uh, which have been disinflationary forces were now going to be uh, headwinds for, for, for inflation um, uh, but he had an interesting exp- expression it's called he used an, uh, uh, an expression that comes from aviation uh, where um, the economy may be approaching what is called a coffin corner. I haven't heard this before. You might you might be more of an doesn't aviation. Sound, doesn't expert. sound good in aviation. It's, yeah, it's the delicate spot where an aircraft slows to below its stall speed. So it's basically that that the because of these supply constraints, the economy could stall out and and just nosedive. I guess is is the kind of the the graphic that comes to mind. Um, so very pessimistic, and it, it, it kind of made me think. You know, for years, it's all been about central bank demand management, but we could be moving forward hearing a lot more about supply side measures, you know, that we used to hear back in the 80s and 90s about getting the supply side of the economy more flexible, because that was the only way to promote growth in the longer term. So that was interesting how all of the central bankers and, and policymakers seem to be saying, we've got this much bigger constraint on from supply now. And that makes it much more difficult to demand management policies, which is what central bankers do. Um, and he, it, you know, from the BIS, it's very much a clear message of you won't be able to do that going forward. And and policy should be directed at improving the supply side. Since you love this uh, central bank stuff. Uh Alan, you should really reach out to William White, who used to run the BIS, and ask him on your Allocator series, because actually I've heard him speak uh, elsewhere, and he's a brilliant uh, uh, brilliant man to talk about these things and uh, and actually how bad central bank policies uh, is in fact conducted. And I think people will realize that it's very different from, uh, uh, from the calm and collective and, and well thought out um, that maybe some people think they always know exactly what to do. Um, so anyways, um, if anybody has uh, his ear uh, of our listeners, uh, maybe they can For uh, sure. Yeah, no, I've read, I've read um, it, some of his pieces over the years and it's been exactly that, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're not going to leave completely the central bank world just yet um, because uh, another topic that you um, wanted to touch on is this um, thing that also happened in Wyoming and that is where they were talking about reassessing the 2% inflation target um, and by the way, I don't know if you know, um, but do you know where the 2% inflation target came from? Well, it was the Reserve Bank of New Zealand that brought it in first. Uh, I don't true. know what, what their rationale was. But. Actually, true. From what I could find out, actually, this was a loose comment um, that a former finance minister in New Zealand put out when he was uh, doing a TV interview back in 1988. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like it was something that was well thought out. No, um, no. But, you know, it did become adopted by pretty much all central, many central, Western central banks. Um, so that's just, uh, but you're right. It's, um, we can blame the Kiwis, not that we would, of course, um, for for this. Um, anyways, are they going to leave the 2% inflation target or what What are they Yeah, it's just interesting. I, I, I'd written a piece a uh, couple of months ago on this, Saying, you know, I think this is something that will come onto the agenda for markets much more over the next few months. I'm surprised it hasn't got more coverage uh, to date. Paul Krugman wrote a piece about this 
probably two months ago, uh, and he's, you know, and he touched uh, to your, on exactly your point that the two percent percent was kind of pulled out of a hat. There was, there was no kind of science to it, you know. Um, you know what is price stability? That's that's the whole point. You know, should it be two percent? Should it be one point five? Does it matter? Um, but if you go back. 10 years, 10, 12 years after global financial crisis, the 2% did prove to be problematic because obviously central bankers were aiming for 2% and inflation then kind of settled a little bit below that. And then if you bring um, interest rates uh, uh, to zero, you, you know, you, you couldn't get very negative real interest rates. You could only get marginally negative real interest rates. Whereas if you had a higher inflation target, like say 4%, then you could get at least meaningfully negative real interest rates without having to push nominal interest rates below zero. Now, obviously, we did go below zero for nominal rates, but economists or, or central banks were, were, were reluctant to do that generally because, you know, might have um, various uh, unforeseen side effects, I guess. Um, but uh, the, the Olivier Blanchard, who was the uh, chief economist at the IMF, I think, at the time, he wrote a piece saying, maybe look at 4%. So kind of went away at the time, but but I think it, it could come back now. Uh, well, it has come back by uh, this uh, FT article, Colby Smith was the journalist who wrote it, and, and, and basically saying, you know, that this is something that came up an awful lot. It, it wasn't so much mentioned in the speeches, so I'm guessing it was kind of in a lot of the, the chit chat that went on there or maybe in some of the q a um but but certainly that that economists and central bankers are reassessing um whether two percent is still um relevant still the right rate to be shooting for or whether it needs to be adapted as as the article says for for a more fractured global economy now the problem is obviously if it's like moving the goalposts uh at the worst possible time, because from a credibility perspective, you, you won't want to do it. But I think where it really gets interesting, you know, the Fed may be successful in getting inflation down to 5%, 4%. If you can get it down to 4 3%, you'd probably think they would be happy with that. And then, it, you know, if, if, if getting inflation down another 1% or 2% is going to cause a spike in unemployment, you know... Does it make sense? You know, what's the economic rationale? All of that. So I think that's going to come up as a, as a topic for, for debate more and more. I'm surprised it hasn't uh, got more coverage, but I think it's very interesting and I think we will hear more of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that, I think that's true. All right, well, let's uh, round off uh, today's episode with a couple of uh, short topics. I actually I don't know if they're short, but um, one is still related somewhat to um, what was going on in... Um, in Wyoming, because it does include uh, Volcker, um, as far as I can tell from your uh, from your headline here. I'm trying um, to remember what the topics I sent you now. Yes, I remember now. Lessons <laughs> from Volcker's tightening cycle, The Secrets of the Temple. Yeah. It's apparently a book. That's right, yeah. So, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk from the various central bankers about the lessons from history. So, you know, I've been reading a bit more on this lately, and one that 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 I give a, a shout out is a, a book called Secrets of the Temple by a guy called William Grider, which covers all of this uh, kind of period in the late seventies, early eighties. So really, well, it's a it's, it's quite a lengthy book, but uh, I'm I'm kind of halfway through it. Very interesting in kind of the detail it gives around the period, and um, you know a few things struck me reading it. Like when you go back to that period of the late nineteen seventies. 
yes, there are parallels with today and, and lessons, but um, equally differences as well, which is important to bear in mind. Uh, you know, you'd had, had a decade of inflation in the US at that point. Um, so it was really um, embedded in the system. You know, the general expectation was, of of you know uh, of of ten percent inflation going forward. I mean that was a widespread b- b- belief. Um, also in the seventies, you had a, a structurally weak dollar, which I think is another very important difference between what we're seeing now. Uh, and Volcker always used to look at the dollar, and he looked at gold prices as measures of, you know, were they being successful in terms of their credibility. So. You know the dollar is breaking out above one forty here. It's not that kind of really ma- pessimistic uh, uh, situation in the U.S. that you had back then. Um, and and equally, you know, gold has gone up in 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 euro terms, in yen terms, but not in dollar terms uh, this year. So again, it's it's slightly different. And the other area is that. When you read about the period, it was a period where there was this rampant speculation in commodities. They talk about, obviously, 1980 was the year where the Hunt brothers uh, tried to corner the silver market, and they talk about that as well. Um, but equally, there was a general sense of borrowing to consume because prices were going to go up, and you, it made sense to have debt because the real value of debt would be eroded over time. So I think it's interesting when you look back at this period of the, the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, people just kind of broad brush and say, oh, the 70s inflation, and this is what happened. Actually, you had three or four, well, probably three distinct periods. You had like late 1960s, early 70s. You had another period around 1973, 74, and then another inflationary surge in 1979, 1980. And by the end of the decade, it was much more credit-driven rather than what we're seeing at the moment, which is a strong economy coupled with a supply shock. So um, very interesting when you delve into it. Um, The other point that that I think was was interesting too is people talk about how Volcker, you know, he was successful in in kind of shifting the dynamic. Um, But even then, even in 1979, when they made the first change, and it wasn't to raise interest rates, it was to basically go to, to target the money supply, and the side effect of that would be higher interest rates. But one of the reasons they did that was because they didn't believe they had the political cover to actually raise rates as much as they needed to. So they said, well, what we'll do is we'll announce that we're going to target the money supply, and the, the knock-on effect of that will be higher rates, but we'll be able to say, well, it's not really our problem, we're targeting the money supply. So it's just interesting how the, even then, even the, the, the guy who who's kind of, heralded as, as, as the one who saved the, you know, the US economy by, by fighting inflation, it, it was probably, you know, had to engineer tactically how, how he would get his own FOMC on site. And, 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 and obviously at the time, was probably fortunate that uh, in the White House, Carter didn't really have the political clout to, 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 to kind of go, go against it. So, you know, I, I, again, I just think that everybody's saying, oh, Powell, you know, he's kind of uh, going to be like Volcker and will follow through. But I just wonder, as it gets more painful, will the political pressure come on and will that be an important uh, dynamic? And certainly when you look back, you can see how that could play out. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to, to give that a shout out in case anybody's looking for sources on that period. Yeah, no, <clears throat> thanks for that. Um, and, and I think that there are a couple of interesting things uh, in that. First of all, I think the first takeaway for me is that even back then, clearly narratives were very important, right? We yeah. talk about narratives today being important as it's if it, as if it's something new. Clearly it's not. Um, secondly, of course, is the fact that 
Um, well, yeah, it's it's true. And as uh, as I talked to uh, Jim about a, a couple of weeks back uh, on the Wednesday episode, you know, clearly everybody talks about Volcker, but let's not forget that actually Arthur Burns, he did raise interest rates quite significantly, but his timing was a little bit early. Uh, and just sometimes you don't get the result you expect um, because of that, um, let alone the fact that there was this political backdrop against uh, what they were doing. Uh, so anyways, super interesting. Um, and um, and it is not surprising, um, but it is, in lack of a better word, interesting uh, how they have been pulling out all these references back from the 70s in the latest uh, narrative that we're getting now from central banks um and um i can't remember what he ended his speech with but it's something like i mean they're not going to be f- done until the job is done or yeah whatever that's, that was yeah. the other point it was referenced to stick, sticking quote. with it which i think sticking, is the name yeah. of the volker's book, that the volker's book biography. exactly yeah. it's a so straight it is, it is that yeah. and and actually that's what happened in 1980 they did they, well in 79 early 80 they tightened but then they eased, and then inflation took yeah. off again. So, so that that's yeah. that's the lesson that 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 really has been uh, harnessed. Being put I guess. forward yeah. now, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Final uh, topic, um, which also sounds uh, interesting. Um, I have no idea what's in it, but it is uh, kind of the latest you've picked up from a great investor, Jeremy Grantham. I have not read it, so I don't know what's in it. Um, but I will listen carefully. Yeah, well, Jeremy Grantham has. Just updated, I guess, his his uh, super bubble um, hypothesis viewpoint. Um, you know, I, I guess people are familiar with Jeremy Grantham's uh, writings. You know, he, he he wrote, I think it was probably in twenty twenty about the last dance. You know, that the the, the equity market was, um, uh, you know, going it might have one final rally up, and then you know, towards I think it was the end of last year, sort of this year was, you know, you'd have to say fairly good in timing that that it looked like we were entering this period i mean now it's an update basically saying what we've seen in the last uh, during the summer the the rebound is is a, is, a, is an equity um bear market rally um so n- n- nothing um massively new i would say except for highlighting that you know maybe when he'd written his previous pieces it was just based on maybe more of a statistical observation that when you get a three sigma deviation from trend in equities that inevitably it will revert back to trend and that often means a i think he quotes a 50 percent decline in equities he says the difference now is actually his read on the fundamentals is that the fundamentals have, have are obviously showing much more um worrying uh, trends in terms of you know food prices fertilizer prices uh China's economic trajectory um, going from fiscal expansion to fiscal tightening in the U.S., coupled with the longer-term, um, you know, climate change, uh, demographics stuff that he's talked about before. So, kind of an interesting um, fundamental overlay to his long-held view that you know what we saw up, you know, through 2020 was a super bubble across not just equities but, but 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 across a number of asset classes and you had that speculative uh, frenzy um you know particularly in the start of 2020 that that was uh, symbolic of that kind of uh, bubble market so you know we we, we kind of we were talking about this actually the last time you know how Manichaeus trend following had done in that kind of equity rebound and relative to, to to past episodes you know within equity bar market so this one is probably 
if 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 we have seen a, a, a high, it's hard. To, you know, who knows? It, it's either the start of a new leg up, or or it is an equity bear market rally. If it, if it's the latter, you know, it's probably what two months or so. You know, I don't know. It, probably in, in on the short side, I would guess relative to to history. But but certainly that's his viewpoint and. You know, again, really at the core of his view is, is is a lot of what you're hearing from central bankers as well. These supply side challenges uh, are are really coming home to bite now um, for the economy and for markets. Yeah, no, absolutely, and of course, as we all know, um, we're probably facing maybe the most difficult time ahead of us, uh, namely uh, what happens when you go through a winter uh, without enough uh, gas and electricity, and what does that do uh, to companies? And we already know that um, many countries have now put in restrictions in terms of how much uh, or how high you can put the temperature in the offices and um, maybe even at home and and all of that. And and since this is not something we've seen in our lifetime, um, I mean, I vaguely remember the not driving on a Sunday during the last uh, oil crisis in the 70s. Uh, of course, I didn't have a driver's license back then, so it didn't really matter. But um, there's going to be some challenges ahead uh, without a doubt and we'll obviously be here to um, to do our best to guide people through that good well as always uh, alan i really do appreciate all the preparations you put into this uh, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation as i'm sure and i hope uh, our audience have done and of course if you did why not jump over to spotify and itunes and and tell the world uh, that actually um, they should go and check out uh, this little podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Rich. Uh, he's going to be back uh, probably with some hardcore trend-following themes, and the latest and greatest from from him. Uh, so if you have any questions for, for Rich to dive into, um, do send them early, as early as possible, to info at toptradersonplot.com, and uh, I'll do my best to bring them up uh, with Rich. Um, that's it for now. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.